Well, unless is there something you that you've been keeping your eye on or thinking about that you want to bring up? I mean, I don't. You know, I mean, I have my issues that I'm normally dealing with. You know, so I have all that stuff. You say you know, we're out here to talk about psychology. Right. No, yeah. <laughs> Religion <laughs> and politics, but not, not psychology. We don't have that kind of time, John. We don't, you know, like, you know, we're not going to make any headway at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So try to be mindful of, of the uh, designated scope. Well, there's another article that says how cults and religious groups forever changed American food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have, I, you know, I, I don't recall ordering the Jonestown burger, but there are uh, cults are behind a lot of different restaurant chains and stuff like that. Right. I think so. I think there's sort of a, an underbelly. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I love the first line though, from the, from the shakers of the 19th century. Uh, a 19th century bunch of dissenting Quakers who, ma- who made a mean lemon pie <laughs> to the Source family, which I don't know what that is. A, a 1970s California hippie cult with a celebrity favorite vegetarian restaurant uh, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS, uh, whose members abstain from alcohol but fully endorse indulging one's sweet tooth. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like well, there's a lot of delving into the the, the evils are, you know, the, the, the netherworld of flavor here. Um, religious groups have been making their mark on American cuisine since the pilgrims wandering into Plymouth Rock. I don't, I don't, I don't know why I'm, get, I'm enjoying all these goofy um, sort of sort of like lead-ins. You know, Gastro Obscura spoke with Ward about America's sticky relationship with theology. How how to know when you're a you're in a cult, and recipes ranging from the Church of Satan's panisse to the pasta farian. So this is like a cult cookbook. Yeah, flying spaghetti monster, holy noodles. That's awesome. I, I mean, it, you know, like what to you know? Okay, you know, I'm like, all right. I mean, I don't know. I guess. I mean, the only food that I know of associated with. Religion is the is the, the 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 wafer, the cracker, the um the host. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure you could think of more if you put your mind to it. No, but like well, a food ritual, like uh, something that's a food that's used in a ritual. I mean, oh, oh, whoa! I mean, there's 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 cultural things that are used in Islam, where, okay, you know, you do a, you know, you make things for holidays or you do. Yeah, village religions have that, right? I mean, but, but that's not. Yeah, oh, but, but, uh, I mean, yeah. So it's you know unleavened, unleavened. Yeah, but it, that's not any kind of traditional. Any 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 kind of tradition will have foods associated with it. Yeah, I mean, but does it, but a lot of it is, is you know from cultural. You know, so like I'll give you an example when you break the fast when you do iftar. You know, you're 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 supposed to break iftar and then we, the you know profit and 
it's dates, you know, use dates as, you know, you know, so you're, I'm not a date guy, which is a hate crime in this song. Yeah. Like I can, I can, I can have a bite, but it's not my thing. Right. So, but you can use, you know, juice or orange juice or this or that, or you can use anything sweet generally. Yeah. I'm a fig guy, big, big guy. I, I don't see a strong distinction between figs and dates. They seem very close to me. Well, but I'm a dry fig guy. Oh. So, but it's always a little tense when we're breaking, when during Ramadan, we're breaking the fast and, and people are like, oh, and 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 people love dates. There's from certain areas and there's all with this a date from the, uh, from the, so the monk rib and from here and super pop. It's, it's very fleshy to me. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Which I feel like it would be very, very, that would be more appropriate during the transubstantiation. Um, I think that you don't want, like, obviously you don't want to turn people if, off. No, if you were going for literalism, uh -huh. then you'd be eating actual meat. It has to be, it can't be, it can't be something that is closely aligned with the metaphysical host, the, the metaphysical body, because then you're mixing signals. So you can't, like, you can't be eating pork and saying this is Jesus's flesh. With a transubstantiation, you believe that the host actually becomes the body and, and the wine because the blood of Christ. Isn't that? In transubstantiation, yeah, that would be a, that would be a fairly accurate way of, of summarizing it. But I don't know what actually means. There's a little in bit that. hand waving involved. So yeah, the the idea th there are words that they use, and I can't think of the exact words. But uh, uh, the idea is something along the lines of it happens in literal reality, but not physical reality. So the chemicals don't change. The chemical makeup of the bread doesn't change. Right. Uh, but the, um, the essential reality of it changes <laughs> in some, yeah, I, I mean, I'm probably not doing a great job of explaining it. Um, and they, the, there are, um, very specific terms that are applied to it. Um, well, I think that because people like to use that, say the literal or the actual, they used to like to use those qualifiers. And I think that for someone who's trying to unpack that, it's difficult to understand what actual or literal means in that construct. Because it's it 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 doesn't look or feel or taste, you know. You're using wine, which is incentive, you know, to kind of pop in there. Okay, yeah. The substance is the word that I was looking for. Uh, during the consecration of the bread and the wine in the Eucharistic liturgy, the actual substance of the bread and wine changes into the substance of Christ's body and blood. Right. In physical philosophical terms. 
substance refers to the underlying reality of a thing, while accidents refer to its observable characteristics. Okay. So, observably, it continues to be bread and wine. In substance, it becomes the body and blood of Jesus. Would it be a miracle if it actually turned into the body and blood? Well, yeah, but I assume that then people wouldn't want to eat it. There's a really interesting document called the Didache. Yeah. You're familiar with it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a very small book. It's very re yep, readable. Yep. And um, I have it at the, in my multi-faith madrasa at the, in the office. There we go. I don't know if you um, recall the um, the Eucharistic um, liturgy that's included in the Didache. What's interesting is that it's a, an extremely early example of um, Christian practice. And the Eucharist is, well, it, it's tied back to the Lord's Supper. Um, it is barely recognizable right. in terms of how it's understood. Well, um, I, I, remind me, because like I said, it's been a while. I mean, we talked about this some time ago, I think, and I have it at the end of the office, but what, what, what's, what's, it is, it's very nuanced, right? Yeah. So, so tell me what, what, what you're remembering. So in the Didache, the Eucharist is a symbol of, um, the diverse elements of the church, um, coming together in common practice. And so it uses the metaphor of grain being gathered from different fields and mixed together into one loaf of bread. Right. So just as the grain is gathered from different fields and combined into this loaf of bread, may we be unified by Christ. And there's also a very strong connection made between Jesus Christ and David. And so David is referred to as God's son, and Jesus is referred to as God's son, and Jesus is seen within the liturgy of this ritual as a continuation of the line of David. Right. Okay. Um, and so it seems to have very heavy Jewish influences in that sense, even though um, the Didache is not advocating for Jewish Christianity. Um, in fact, it's, it seems to be opposed to it, but it has that very strong messianic connection between David and Jesus, and it places a heavy emphasis on unity, community. It's interesting because it's an old document. It's 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 it, no one knows it's you know its authorship and stuff. But I, I know I, I I and it's not part of the canon. It's not part of this. But they, but but it's it's alleged that it's, that it's it 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 could be something that was agreed upon by some of the apostles. Is that is that fair to say? Um, there are elements of it that um, well, it was, it was sort of expanded into the. I think it was called the Rule to the Twelve Apostles, something like that. Right. Um, and so it was used as a, as a foundation for this longer document that was very important to the early church. Um, so the prayer 
uh, of the the Eucharist is we thank thee our father for the holy vine of David thy servant which you made this known to us through Jesus thy servant to thee be the glory forever and concerning the broken bread we thank thee our father for the life and knowledge which you made us known to us through Jesus thy servant to thee be the glory forever even as this bread broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into that kingdom for thine is the glory etc etc um and so it's it's interesting you know it was certainly interesting an interesting discovery for me you know as someone who had um grown up with kind of very simple uh, communion rituals based on uh, certain portions of scripture I think it's mostly in Romans if I recall correctly um but a very strong it basically is is a very this very strong connection to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ the body and blood of Jesus Christ and stuff like that and it's interesting that here in this very early document it's much more metaphorical and much more metaphysical and there isn't any reference at all to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Well, I like that it's like it's like the Lord's instruction to the Gentiles, and I think that's why I originally got it. And so to try to try to figure out what's the difference, because you know I'm trying to figure out where the Jewish Jesus movement broke. And of course, you know I'm very critical of Paul, and I don't. Mm-hmm. Really, we can have a conversation about that, but I don't want to really go down that road if we don't want to. But um, but I'm happy well, to. But you know, it's, it's, let's let bygones be bygones, shall we? You know, the, the, the Paul train. You know, uh, I don't want that. Uh, maybe we, we shouldn't go out and let that leave the station. But uh, and so, it's it's interesting when there's something that's out there that isn't agreed upon as part of canon, including the canon, but is an alternate, or it chooses to not include certain things. Like, 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 the, like the sacrifice on the cross. It's more instructional, more, more, pre, more about the priesthood, mm-hmm. more about behavior than it is about elevating or obfuscating an, an event. Yeah. So. I don't believe I'm I'm trying to double check. I don't see any direct connection in the Didache or any direct reference to the cross or or to Jesus's sacrifice. Yeah, it's 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 more instructional mm-hmm. um, from one of the world, but I think that but the problem is it came later, right? So what when was What's it dated as? The Didache is pretty darn early, yeah. so it's. Um, I know Eastern Orthodoxes are are passionate about it. Yeah, um, if I recall correctly, it is um, within the first hundred and fifty years after right. the crucifixion. Yeah, it's very it's very close. So that's pretty early, for, as far as these documents go, in terms of like original source documents and stuff like that. 
Well, they're not original source documents. And I mean, obviously, there the Didache itself wasn't discovered until the 1800s in, in some obscure Orthodox monastery. Right. Right. But it, but it was dated. But it's a real, reference yeah. enough that we, that we can be fairly certain that the text is is um, accurate. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, as, as you say, the document is mainly instructional, um, has a lot to do with um, how a Christian should conduct uh, his or her life. Um, and it also has some kind of practical guidance. It's got stuff about baptism. It's got stuff about Eucharist. Um, it's got um, some interesting stuff about how to um, handle itinerant prophets um, and that sort of thing and what constitutes a true prophet and what constitutes a false prophet. So... Anyway, uh, I, I said I appreciate it from an uh, instructional perspective. It's just it's very very clear, sort of straight lines, which is you know, that's, that's, yeah. So it's you know it's, it's very Islamic. At a personal level, I gravitated towards it because uh, I, I was when I was in the evangelical world, I found myself on this quest to try to find the the root of the tree that I had grown out of to get back as early as I could. Because, of course, we've got the the Gospels and the Epistles, right? So that's, you know, in terms of really early connections to well, the well, faith. Well, you got the Torah. I mean, I always tell people, go back to the source. Jesus was a Jew, and he was a rabbi. And so go, th you know, spend some time... With the, with the with the community with the Jewish community because he observed all those holidays. Okay, yeah, but the question for us was, well, how did Christians live? And you know, r right after Jesus, what well, what was it like to be a Christian in that time? Um, because there was this there's this idea that if you could get that if you could get down to it, that essential Christianity would be simple that it would be obvious, that it would be clear? Well, it'd be simple, obvious, and clear from a, a, a Jewish perspective because you had James, who was managing and arbitrating the Jewish Jesus movement before the fall of Jerusalem, but then you have Paul, who starts to editorialize the movement and then work with a, a, a Gentile diaspora. And once Jerusalem ceases to exist because of the sacking of Israel by uh, by the Romans in like 70-ish, you lose the, that Sanhedrin and now it becomes a rabbinic faith. And so now it's just, it's it becomes a, a, a deconstructed mm -hmm. uh, and, and Paul and can the Pauline doctrine can really now flourish because there was the idea that Paul would have to come back and he would have to answer to the Sanhedrin, which he did, I think, two or three times where they made reassert his commitment to the Torah. And and that happened. But once that exists, it's a free-for-all. Once that ceases to exist, it's a free-for-all. And so I'm always concerned with that nexus and I go and well, 
it seems pretty simple when Jesus is, is around, right? Hazanis is around and Hazanis is doing this and his priesthood. And then it seems very simple even after he and and then but then all of a sudden you get this confusion this break and then we start getting to gospels gospels and epistles and all this stuff letters and and all this other jazz and so that becomes very interpretive and the straight lines don't cease to exist if you look if you start looking after that 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 the the sacking of jerusalem yeah i mean i think that very generally speaking what I found, the further back I went to that nexus, um, the, the the period immediately following the crucifixion of Jesus, um, I found exactly what I didn't want to find, which was diversity. There were a lot of diverse tra trails of thought, a lot of diverse perspectives going around. And I think that... Uh, within the context of history, there was a fairly concentrated and uniform effort to weed that down, to to hide a lot of the diversity of thought. Well, I, I read The Name of the Rose every year. I love that book. You know, are you familiar with it? You know, it sounds familiar, but I'm not sure. It's It's a fictitious book. It's it's fiction, but it's historical fiction, and, and it focuses on a monast a murder, a series of murders in a monastery. That's a library. Okay, this is new to me. Okay, go ahead and tell me about it. And there's a, like a Vatican inspector, or or or, or um, you know, like the guys that do the uh, the the the, the, with the with the guys that do the the. the when when something somebody's possessed by the devil, what's it called? Exorcist. Exorcist. Like you know, like there's special guys that do exorcisms. There's a special, I guess, you know, sort of unit, you know, that does the inspections when there's a murder and a monastery. And so, <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, I just, no, but does this happen? I, I'm sure he called in frequently. You know, she, you know, if you, you know, let's not do the math on the mysteries of of the Catholic Church. And anyway, this takes place in like you know the 1500s or something. Okay. And so, there's been a murder. Uh, at a monastery, it's a library, mm -hmm. and uh, and and they, you know, they're you know, this is one of those the periods where they're transcribing things, you know, that's a way with monks do. And so, uh, this guy is an intellectual, and he shows up, and uh, and so there's a series of murders that happen while he's there. And do you want me to spoil it for you or not? Yeah, you uh, like for the purposes of the podcast, feel free to do what you think is best. Yeah, I, I don't really. The bottom line is, is that apparently there's a document somewhere uh, written by like Aristotle that talks about humor and then it's related. And then there's also, there's a, there's, it's a preserved document mm -hmm. and there's a debate between the, the guy that's in charge of the, the monastery and basically says that humor is, is evil. Humor as in being funny? Yeah. Or humor as in the humors? Yeah. So, so the, the, the problem is, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be as general as possible. I don't want to get into specificity too much, but so then if there's, so humor is, is not, not godly, uh, not Christian. And, uh, if in, if they're trying to hide this document along with other documents that are funny, that talk about humor as a way in which is celebrating faith. Huh? And so, uh, 
but so that's the that's the plot. But it, it, what's interesting, what I find most interesting about the book is that, like today, it's during the Inquisition, right? So they talk about all these different sects during this time. Yep, and it's like, oh, well, he's a Catholic, he's a uh, a Franciscan. Oh, he's a, uh, a, uh, um, um, well, I don't know all the orders, but the, the Benedictine, you know, and, and they talk about all these terms and these orders, and they talk about some of the purges within the Catholic church to yeah. get rid of these, that diversity. Yeah. Right. So all these, it's, there's this, this potpourri of different monks who, may or may not have repented, who have all claimed to repent from whatever sect they came from within the Catholic Church, and they're all in one spot, but they make a point of of making sure that they, the, the, the author describes, well, you know, he goes, oh, well, you know, you're, you know, that, well, you, you, the, 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 the Cathar purge would happen here, and you came from that monastery, so are you still this? You know, so they make sure they talk about how they're, 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 the Catholic Church is sort of destroying the diversity of of their of the the, the, the communities within the Catholic so like an internal Inquisition. Yeah, well, well, that's what the Inquisition was really for. I mean, we think more people, but yeah, yeah. yeah. In any event, that it that's the really interesting part to me of the book. Mm -hmm. Not not this and the and the investigation of the murder because I like murder mysteries. It's a good great murder mystery. Mm -hmm. And it's the same things happening now. Right, so evangelicals in America, there's all these different organizations. So there's uh, you know international Christian concern. There's in defense of Christians. There's jubilee campaigns. There's all these different things, and they're all mo large part evangelical. And and they always tout the Christian perse persecution throughout the world, um, and and really cite the Middle East. Uh, but in the Middle East, most of the Christians that are being persecuted are Eastern Orthodox, yeah. and they hate them. Right, you know they they but they're and they're but they're all too happy that they're getting eradicated so they can parachute in and evangelize. Right, so. Uh, and in the Ukraine, this is happening right now. You have the Russian Orthodox Church and the Eastern Orthodox, and the and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church just declared autocephaly about five years ago, mm -hmm. which is independence, right? But then you have the Catholic Church that's wedging its way in and and now starting to get more followers because it's neither, and they're providing a safe space for Orthodox communities. That makes right? sense. So and so, but so there's this right now that's that that's happening, right? And the idea that there's this diversity. And everyone's jockeying for position. Wow. I, I, I wonder if the war in Ukraine could be the beginnings of unification between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Maybe this is how it happens. I, I You know, I mean, which Orthodox Church? The Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, or sort of the Eastern Orthodox off, all, you know, after hours, like the Antiochians? Well, it would have to happen, you know, patriarchate by patriarchate. Yeah, well, that, right? that's the challenge, you know, and so... But then you also have the head of the Eastern Orthodox communities, you know, Bartholomew, who uh, was in Constantinople, mm -hmm. and he's, I, I think, I think, doctrinally, yeah, and uh, and theologically, the head of all the Orthodoxies. Yeah, but it's a very loose affiliation. Uh, it's it's a it's it's kind of like it, it's a. Um, Reverence by convenience, and I think the the big difference, as I understand it, as a fairly uneducated outsider, is that there's a big difference between the average 
Eastern Orthodox person's reverence for the patriarch in Constantinople and the average uh, Catholic's reverence for the Pope. You know, um, although there, there's a lot of uh, diversity of thought there as well. And I think that's, what, that's really what it comes down to, is that there's always going to be diversity. Like the more people you have brought into a religious community, by definition, the more diversity of thought there's going to be within the context of that community. And there's always these counter forces of um, the, the value of diversity, of having as many people as possible versus the value of being homogeneous and unification. I was, well, I was just at this ecumenical, ecumenical co co conference at this you know, thousand plus year old monastery in Hungary. And it was, I've been wondering what you were up to. <laughs> that was, it was, was funny. Cause the, the comment you're like, you kept oh. sending me these like cryptic texts with, you know, you sent me a few photos where you were like doing a gangster pose with a priest. Um, and you'd be like, gangster hey, pose. Guess we're in a gangster pose. You were like doing this, uh, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Well, I had I had you wouldn't more to answer do. any direct questions. Well, yeah, I, I, I think <laughs> I, I think it was all about, you're being very all right. So I thought you were being intentionally mysterious. No, I thought so I was all like to clear this up. No, all right. So I sent you know, a series of pictures and I said, guess the guess the Calvinist church <laughs> because there was like Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, you know, it's so Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. Then there was Catholic Church, you know, which is all very large tchotchke based faith groups. Yeah. And then there was this one that's just like, mm, and it's just like a wooden cross. And it's just, that's like the true, long. That's the true governance of church. And that's the true. Well, it was. It, it, was, tradition. it, it was something. And, yeah. and, and I mean, even that, it was not as, it was, certainly wasn't as sexy to go in that place. And I, I guess. Guess you're not an Anabaptist. It's very, well, you know, if you're going to be Christian, you can't just go all in. You have the cross anyways. It's an idol. Uh-huh. So you got, you got all this stuff anyway. So just, you might as well just be all in. That's a, that's a tempting rabbit trail, but let's try to stay focused. So you were at this ecumenical conference. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's called Palamande. Palamande. It's a, it's an old monastery in the middle of, uh, in the middle of Hungary. Mm -hmm. Panahama is what it's called. Panahama. And it's a Benedictine monastery, mm -hmm. and they were hosting uh, Bartholomew. I, I, you know, I met him, and uh, they were hosting members of the ROC, Orthodox Church, the Orthodox Church. They had the Lutherans. Wow, this guy, this Lutheran guy. Then they had uh, a, a, a pantheon of Protestant Calvinists. Um, it was it was fantastic. Um, you you so it. I mean, you can. You can, you can, and it is, you know, it's, it was, are you looking it up? Yeah, I'm trying to, what was this ecumenical conference? You want me to give you the who's a what's a so-and-so? Okay, ecumenical patri patriarch of Constantinople visited Hungary. This sounds that's like me. That's the, yeah, that's the, that's the trip. No, you're not the patriarch. No, but that's, that was the, that's the thing, you know. Yep. Uh, and it was... Uh, it was something to listen to all of the speech. I mean, like the Vatican was there. I, there was a, there was a couple of cardinals, uh, and there was a couple of bishops, uh, which was 
it was fantastic uh, to listen and to hear because the diversity that we were talking about earlier exists. Um, although each order, I'm, I'm also a little bit nervous because I always, I mean, the reason why Muslims for Muslims exists is because you can't have a dais where you have a Christian, uh, 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 you know, somebody from the Christian community, a Jewish community and so forth, representing the entire community because it's so diverse. So I yeah. get nervous about having one Muslim that represents all of Islam. So this was fantastic. So I don't know when you have a cardinal, I guess, you know, what's up on the cardinal is the, is the Pope. So I guess the cardinal can represent all of Catholicism. I, I, I think in that, right, you know, hierarchy, that bureaucracy, that is somebody who can represent the whole, I think. Uh, and then Bartholomew can represent the whole because of his title. Mm-hmm. Although there's some question about when it comes to autocephaly, the independence of each patriarchy within the Orthodox Church. So the Russian Orthodox Church is independent that's run by a guy named Kirill and uh, and then the Eastern Orthodox or the, the Greek Orthodox Church I'm not sure but then also the Antiochians which is one of the oldest churches so everybody is supposed to flow through Constantinople uh, but there's I know there's some there's some break between whether it should be Constantinople or Jerusalem the patriarch in Jerusalem. Yeah, because uh, at, what, it started with Jerusalem, right? So originally, the patriarch of Jerusalem was considered to be sort of the the, the head patriarch. Yeah. Like uh, the greatest among equals. Right. Is the idea. Yeah, that's the right. term. Yeah, that they... Um, and first among equals. And then there was a historical shift that took place where... Um, the Byzantine period with the, with the Roman... The Roman Christians in Constantinople. Yep. So there was also a patriarch of Rome, right? And as the West gained dominance, the patriarch of Rome became sort of revered historically as the um, the place where the buck stopped in terms in terms of doctrine and theology. And so that's kind of where the origins of the Catholic Church is. Because there was this this long period of time in which the sort of authority of the church was making a transition from Jerusalem to Rome, yeah. um, but then Constantinople became the new Rome. Right. Yeah. But now there is an east-west split. Right. Yeah. Right. And so Constantinople is in the east, Rome is in the west, and the insistence of the uh, the Roman patriarch that he be considered the first among equals is kind of the origin of the Roman Catholic right. Church. Papal, the, you know, the rise of the papal authority. Yeah, and then you have, you know, like I said, the, the East to Western Empire falls. Eastern Empire maintain, maintains itself for another, you know, X Y Z what thousand years, right? Yeah, and then, until it's sacked. Until it's sacked by the, the Western Roman. Yeah, well, I you know it's people. Well, you know, they're being precious. Yeah. There was the there are the Crusades and then there were Well, the Fourth Crusade is what set the state Islamic invasion for uh uh was it is it uh, I'm trying to think maybe the second to 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 sack Constantinople. So I yeah, because that... they were actually they were in collusion with each other. Right. Right. So the the Christians and the Muslims were actually working together against Constantinople during a 
you know, right. period of time. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's so, but then Constantinople falls, the patriarch still exi- survives it and exists. And that's Bartholomew's line. Mm-hmm. But you also have the Jerusalem patriarch who's now could be the authority and I, uh, within that, within the, the, the East, Eastern Orthodox Church. But so we have like three places that have their own kind of claims to primacy. Well, yeah. Well, that's the problem. I mean, so I would, so the ROC, the Russian Orthodox Church operates, uh, does operate. I think, I think the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Antioch, everybody kind of says okay to Constantinople. Yeah. But I, I don't, I think there's a now a rising tide of, there perhaps needs to be a shift to Jerusalem. At least that's what I got from some of the conversations that I had. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. That would be, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, my, 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 where does the authority lie? Evangelical eschatological bells are ringing. <laughs> well, I, I generally think that a lot of it has to, you know, when any, any of these ships happen, it has to do with money, but, um, but I, and you know, with yeah. profits, but I don't, I, I think that y- you have, if I was going to give a scorecard on Bartholomew from an outsider's perspective, he lost the Hagia Sophia. That's a big loss mm-hmm. on top of the Ottoman conquering, which I would hold him responsible for. Uh, and then on the eve of the, the Ottoman conquering, there was a, um, a really strange situation where the dome of, do you know about this? The dome of the Hagia Sophia glowed, was glowing blue. And then a light shot up to the heavens. When did this happen? Google it. Strange light. Uh, fall of Constantinople. Google it. But it, there was a there was a volcanic eruption, so that's how they kind of explain it. But Google it. You're pre- you're pretend googling now. You said this is the problem. No, you were you're. I'm listening. That you're pretending. I can't listen and Google at the same time. I'm not that. Strange good. light. Fall of Constantinople. Just Google it, and it'll come up. And so people look, saw that as like God leaving the city. And then you had, of course, they, you know, there's the, what were they, what were, what were they, what were the guys? They were Genoese. I think Genoese mercenaries. They left. They took up, they cut, took a couple of, of fancy ladies and said, we're get we're out of here. So they lost their, their troops. But I give a lot of props to Constantine, the, the last Byzantine emperor, the last Roman emperor who put on just regular armor and charged out with his men mm-hmm. and took them, it took his medicine. During the fall of Constantinople in 1453, there are historical accounts from a mysterious light that was seen in the Hagia Sophia, that kind of Christian cathedral that later became a mosque and is now a museum in Istanbul, Turkey. According to various historical sources, on the night of May 28, 1453, as the city of Constantinople was under siege by the Ottoman Empire led by Sultan Mehmed Mehmed, Mehmed yeah. the second. A strange light or glow was reported to be observed within the Hagia Sophia. This light was interpreted by some as a divine or supernatural sign, while others viewed it as a natural phenomenon or as an atmospheric reflection. The chronicler and eyewitness of the siege, Leonard of Chios, mentioned the phenomenon in his account, describing a strange light or glow illuminating the interior of the Hagia Sophia during the night leading up to the fall of Constantinople. Uh, other chroniclers made mention of the light. The interpretations of this light vary. Some believe it was a divine intervention or a miraculous sign, while others thought it could be caused by fire, reflection, or the play of light through the windows. 
regardless of its origin, the fall of Constantinople marked a significant historical event, leading to the end of the Byzantine Empire and the establishment of the Ottoman Empire, Empire's rule over the city. I'm not saying it was aliens. <laughs> you need to work this into your writings of their special ship now. Because you got to that, that, that like, if you could work, weave this into your writings, um, your sci-fi writing, it would be fantastic. If you were reading what's currently going on in the story, you would not be surprised if that happened. You'd say, just put it that way. You know, somebody identifies as, the, as the, as, you know, the light from 1453. <laughs> How great is that? I've, I, I could work it in. I accept your challenge. Yeah. And then, um, but it, I, you know, it, so you, you know, I would argue that God in 1453, God left you know, the Orthodox God left Constantinople. Therefore, uh, Jerusalem is the center. So you're holding the current patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church personally responsible for this fall of the Hagia Sophia? Well, if God is on your side, you don't lose. Yeah, that opens a lot of interesting questions. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and clearly God left the city that day. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, your emperor is dead. Your mercenaries have left. The walls are breached. All of the heirlooms of Christianity are dumped in the middle of of the 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 uh, the Sultanamet, um, right right where the um, hippodrome was, uh, and they still have that stuff in the museums. Yeah. Well, I consider it to be you know validation of Jesus's maxim that a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. So right. there we go. Um, obviously the, so he eliminated the, the kingdom that was not performing. So where does authority reside? I now Jerusalem because it's been reestablished, right? All that business. If you had to pick one patriarchate, that has clearest, like legitimate historical. You asking me? No, I'm just yeah. posing the question, throwing it out there. Yeah, the strongest legitimate historical claim to primacy. Um, I I can see why. I I think that Constantinople actually has the weakest case because it was a latecomer. Well, it was right. it was a latecomer, and and the, the well the establishment of well but Constantinople as New Rome was a political situation, well not a religious one. Well, it was a political. It was it, 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 I, I would argue that there is a religious element to it because you have to move the center with kingship. If you don't move it with kingship or emperorship, like if you go to Hagia Sophia, there's a section and there's a spot where all the emperors, all the of 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 uh constantinople were crowned yeah and so you need that authority i mean it mattered all the way through our period I mean, napoleon was big on that you know he wanted to have the scepter he wanted to have this he had to have so everybody wants that um the Habsburgs. when if i when i was in vienna you know all of the Habsburg possessions are on loan to the to the the Austrian government, and they have a cross, pick, 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 piece of the cross. They have something that they call a chalice, and then they have a spear of destiny, right? So they have some of these heirlooms there, and 
And so all these symbols matter. And I think it did matter. While Constantinople was Constantinople, while the walls were breached, it was the center of the, the Christian faith, was it not? While, while the papacy was building its authority and expanding mm -hmm. and aligning with the French kings and, and all this other song and dance, right? So, it, and, and the, so I think that there was a power base there, but, you know, all the, you know, nothing gold can stay. I think that the Russian Orthodox Church is, has its own authority, but there's, that's cultural, right? And same thing with the Greek Orthodox Church, very cultural. Yeah. It's based on, based on ethnicity or culture, um, language, that sort of thing. You know, the Antiochians are probably the closest, maybe the oldest, because they're in the Middle East. It's in Turkey right now, right? It's in the southern part of Turkey is Antioch. And, uh, and that patriarch there, I'm not sure what he's doing, but that that's that's an older church. It's older than the Greek Orthodox and older than the Russian Orthodox and older than the Constant, Constantinople patriarchy. Yeah, not I'm the oldest. Looking for this, the cradle of Christianity, we're talking about like what, Syria? That, that yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is on the border of Syria. Yeah. So that's Antioch is on the border. Of, I mean, you know, semantics because it's it's southern part of Turkey on the border of Syria. But Antioch was the center. Yeah. You know, but then we get into, okay, are the Church of the East? Right. Well, then we, then we start muddying our water with that. Clearly, claims to primacy are not just about age. They're about all these kind of like socio-historical political factors. I'm going to, I'm going to recommend, you know. What's that? Uh, that are they, we going to, are we going to make an edict now? A we, fatwa? Yeah. Let's do, we can do a fatwa right now. We can do it. Let's call it a bull. A bull. Let's call it a. <laughs> a not a papal bull. Well, I, I don't think we can. Let's just bull. call it bull. Okay. Right. So <laughs> I, I have no idea what we're doing anymore. Um, so I have no clue what's the, happening anymore. The bull that I'm presenting suggests that there should be a new patriarchate because obviously we're not going to resolve. We're not going to resolve. But the Church of the East Center is Baghdad, which is where is that in the pantheon of of, of orthodoxy? Is that an orthodox? Christian? Well, yeah. Let's establish it in Babylon. Well, I think it. I think it is. It, it was in the Nineveh plateau on in one of those towns. I can't remember what, you know. I, I don't know if Nineveh is the is, is it was the center for a while. Yeah, Jericho. You're just saying that. You're just plugging your set. <laughs> now, now you're just plugging. Your I was going to recommend that it be placed in Megiddo. Yeah, why not have everything happen right there? Yeah. Anyways, I, I mean, let's just jump the gun here and get things rolling, shall we? I think we've committed, I don't know how many heresies in this conversation, but I think the problem is, is, is... It depends on the new side you're on. Yeah, yes, it does. I mean, I, you're doing, I'm having fun because I just, you know, I, I have no idea how to do the math on any of this. I mean, we have pilgrimage sites, but I, I don't, I mean, maybe you could say the center is Mecca, um, but we have pilgrimage sites, you know, the Lex, uh, you know, the Luxa Mosque and, and so forth. I don't know. I, anybody, my disclaimer is anybody who this is not a place to get your dean. This is I'm not that. Where this is a speculative conversation between two friends. For uh, so, for Shia and Sunni, are there the equivalent of patriarchs for those sects? So so it's a good question. So in Shiva Shia Shiism, Yavayatolas. Okay. That's that's the authority. Plural. Yeah, there's multiple ayatollahs. How how are they an organized group? Nah, I mean. You, uh, 
<laughs> I'm sorry. That's, that's kind a, of a loaded question. That's a very loaded question. I don't know any Ayatollah that is organized. I'll just tell you that right now. There's a lot of disorganization. But yeah. so what happens is, is that there's different Ayatollahs. So scholars, um, like the highest that are descendants from the prophet, peace be upon him, right? From the, from the last prophet, right? Um, so, so Muhammad, right? And then you know, like Isa, Hazrat Isa, Jesus, but peace be upon him, is a prophet, right? So, so there's descendants of prophets, right? But the highest is, is an Ayatollah. Mm -hmm. um, we're a little bit nervous about that term because of uh, the, the, the 79 revolution in, in Iran. Uh, 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 you know, Khomeini was, uh, was, was an Ayatollah, or was an Ayatollah. Um, Khomeini, who is in charge now, is, uh, is an Ayatollah. But Sistani, for example, is, is an Ayatollah in, 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 uh, in Iraq. And that's sort of a, a moderate or very different um, um, type of Shiism. Uh, they're generally, if I was going to reference Ayatollahs, um, I would say, okay, you're Sistani and Shirazi. Shirazi's an Ayatollah in, in Iran. Um, he's a moderate from the, the Supreme Council, but he's a little bit more strict than Sistani, right? Who's outside of Iran and in centered on Karbala, which so I'm getting a bonus site. So, so, so the good way to look at this is, is this is how I would look how I look at it is like, it's very rabbinic. Uh -huh. Okay. So you would have, you have people that you follow that you kind of opt are either born into or opt into. There's not many Ayatollahs yep. in, on, in Shiism. And you would decide on uh, who you follow. But, but a lot of people are born into it. So like the Sistani guys are, and I'll give you an example. There was this, there was a, there was a guy, um, Al-Khui was, uh, uh, um, there, it, it, it was, was, was a high Ayatollah. And, and when he passed away, he gave his, his followers went into the Sistani group, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so generally you follow a certain, a certain Ayatollah who's a descendant of the prophet, right? Because the Shia difference to Sunni and Shia is, is one follows the best friend, Amr mm -hmm. Bakr. Yep. And the other one follows the, the family, right? Yep. So, I mean, that's its simplest form, the difference between Sunni and Shia, all right? So in, in Sunniism, it's different. It's schools of jurisprudence, four schools, four maktabs, right? And in, in, and in, in Shiism, it's four major schools. And this is out of the Amman conference where all the scholars met in 2004, decided what mainstream Islam is. There might be other sects out there, but they're fringe. And so the, for the schools of jurisprudence, it's different. So there's like a school that's called Hanafi, right? Or Maliki that, that follows a, a particular scholar from a particular time, but then that breaks out into uh, imams. And so, uh, and it breaks out into uh, senior scholars and leaders within those communities. And then you might follow, you know, a, a, a sheikh or, 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 or an imam that would be from that school. Uh, that, that, so jurisprudence versus the family line. But ayatollahs would be the closest you could come to, like, I think, patriarchs. Uh, because generally, they communicate in a semi-regular basis. They had geographical authority. They, uh, there's some question on who's in charge of what. Uh, and there's incursions into territory. 
but it's a lot of it has to do with interpretation, schools of thought, blah blah blah. So, like, I have a very good friend of mine, Mustafa, who's who's a who's a, a, a Shirazi guy. Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, we don't really differ on a lot of stuff. If I was a Twelver, if I was a Shia Twelver, which is a sect in in Shiism, I'd be a Sistani guy, mm-hmm. but I'm not a Twelver. Um, but I like looking. I like reading this. The, this different books of jurisprudence, are are the different books of Islamic law within the Shiism and and Sunnism to figure out because I helped arbitrate on some of these things overseas, but um, in, in different communities. But but it, it's really it's interesting because they interpret the law differently based on how liberal or conservative they are. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to Sunnism, they, they, there's it's a, it's there's schools of jurisprudence. So there's law, right? There's a there's there's a lot of case law, um, but you could be following uh, Ben Baya, who is in in uh, um, the UAE, or Usmani, um, who is in Pakistan, and then you could be following different different schools from different places. And then the problem is, is like you would to answer your to further answer your question that then you have like muftis, right? So you'll have a, a guy who's in charge of a church of a particular country. Mm-hmm. So like the Grand Mufti of 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 uh, in Tunisia, just just made a, a about three three or four years ago said uh, intermarriage is okay amongst Muslims. You don't have to do the go through the special process. So Sunni and Shia can marry to make sushi. You know, so you could have just said no. Well, but the, you know, the, <laughs> the, I think that you know it's it's interesting because I never I don't think I've ever answered that question. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm kind of thinking out loud, you know, you've got the muftis floating around. Like if I was going to, one of my favorite guys is Baba Mundi, mm-hmm. daddy of the world. Yeah. And Baba Mundi is head of a Sufi community, head of the Sufi community in Albania. And so he's got the title of, of, of you know, Baba, like dad, you know, uh, and Mundi meaning world, right? So Baba Mundi. So that's a unique title for him. But that's, that's, that's he's something like a cult leader. Well, I mean, he he, he may um, be a, a cult leader if, from the perspective of no one else follows him other than Albanian Sufis, but the Albanian Sufis are the community in Albania. Yeah. So I, I don't, you know, we, it, it wouldn't be considered mainstream Islam. Right. Uh, so, uh, but I think that, you know, if you, when you have a mufti and you're at that level and you're in charge of a country, I think on the Sunni side, I think you're probably... You're probably at the same level as an Ayatollah. So you know, in Christianity, you have lots of different um, denominations and groups and interpretations. Some of whom recognize a supreme authority over their group, like right. the Pope. Yeah. Right. Many of whom do not. Or or or, or or King Charles, who's the head of the Anglican Church. Right. And it sa- it sounds like it's the same thing for both Judaism and Islam as well, where broadly speaking, there's no one person who is undisputed. Um, authority over either of those, you know, religions. Yeah. Within particular groups, you may have some groups that claim to have a supreme authority and by inference suggest that whether or not that supreme authority is recognized, they are in fact the supreme authority over, you know, the religion or the world or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. You're right. Um, it, it, there is a lot of diverse there's no central authority within Islam yeah so to which I say why not me it, to be in charge of Islam you know just whatever 
seems right. Well, you, you know, here's the thing. I think everybody, I think you certainly could, uh, you know, pa- bypassing the hubris and uh, of that statement and the, and the you know. <laughs> As we would say where I come from, do what the Lord puts on your heart. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then someone would respond, bless your heart, bless your heart, right? I, I just want to, we, we, we're hitting the hour mark here, but I'm just, I, I wonder if you could just take five minutes and summarize your experience at the ecumenical conference. What was your, what was it like? What was, what was your takeaway? It was, so I'm very passionate about intra-faith engagement. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of multi-faith engagement going on. I've been involved in the multi-faith field for a long time, you know, 20 some odd years. And I think it's a healthy, there's a healthy group of multi-faith engagement. Everybody gets in the same room and from different faiths and everybody's really nice to each other. Yep. Um, and usually, you know, I've been involved in all these, these really glam photos of all these different faith groups and people in funny outfits and their pajamas and hats, you know, really you know, hugging each other, shaking hands and, you know, very smiling. And then, and then everybody going away. I'm critical of that process because I think there's a healthy amount of multi-faith engagement, but the problem is, is that everybody has their guy or their gal, you know, so they have their Muslim that they like, or their Christian that they like, or they do business with. So in that case, it's a little bit, uh, it's not as healthy as I, as one, as, as one might think it is. Uh, there's people that have cornered their market on multi-faith from, and representing an entire faith that have built a whole business of that. We talked about Imam Majid was one, one of the guys in, within the Muslim community because his mosque is in proximity uh-huh. to, to, to D.C. He's always been the go-to guy, represent, and he represents one with Tab and so forth. Um, but I think, and, and there's a lot. There's a group of those people just within the Beltway that are the, the, the go-to, the usual suspects. Yeah. So it's not as healthy as you think. What I'm, pa- what I'm passionate about is intra-faith because I think the solution to that is intra-faith engagement. And so I was, I, the question that I asked is like, I was like, what does ecumenical, ecumenical mean? Yep. And it basically means like diversity, uh, multiple groups within a faith. It doesn't necessarily mean Christian. Right. So I, I, I pondering that. And so the, the cool thing about it is that, ever, that this, this group of Christians came together to discuss essentially faith engagement a lot of the statements were lofty so then i'm always worried about the so what and what now but but i think the value of getting together is important i'm not sure that aside from the speeches uh and interface interfaith interfaith interfacing with the audience which did happen there's a lot of questions um about you know how do we get to peace how do we you know the, the Lutherans are here, and the the Calvinists are here, and and how are they? How are the Lutherans and the Calvinists collaborating? And I was like, I mean, they're splitting hairs here, aren't they? The same thing, but I mean, like I was, no. I was well, no, but you say no, but then on top of that, I go, I got a cardinal sitting up there who, you know, is completely off the rails from these guys. You know, like you you know, so like we're splitting hairs on the on yeah. the, the guys on the other side of Reformation, and these guys just need to get their act together, you know, and say, look, you know, whatever whatever we agree upon don't disagree upon let's just put this over here for now because we got to deal with the catholics and the orthodox so in many cases i think it was amazing to see massive power brokers within the cat within the christian community sit down and meet uh-huh. and the problem and, and and talk about some of these things 
and it wasn't superficial. The challenge was, and the difficulty for me was, so I, I you know, shook hands with Bartholomew and we did the whole, there's so much nuance in interacting with each one of these guys that you can't just talk. Mm. So it, 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 there's, it, 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 you know, ha, there has to be a table and they have to be elevated and there's, there's scepters. One yeah. guy's holding the scepter. They all have scepters. Mm. I don't know what the hell that even means, but they all have a staff of Ra, you know, like that's, that's like, you know, like that's doing something, you know, but, but I assume it means their authority. They're all dressed in, in, in their, you know, their, their, their Christian finery, which in it, so I, I, it was like, you know, my, my, I have Catholics in my community, in my, in my family. And one of the things was I go, oh, it is a Cardinal and that's a Bishop. And I was like, what? And I go, Cardinal means red. So who's the Cardinals higher than the Bishop in the Catholic church? So I was like, oh, okay. Like that was one of those things, you know, like I'm trying to do the math on everything. And it's really difficult. I mean, we're all drinking coffee. We're all drinking water. We're all drink we can't just sit down at a table and talk. Yeah. And because there's so much nuanced in, nuance in, 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 in ritual in just saying hello. Yeah. Uh, and there's, and everybody's surrounded by like a, like a, like a posse. Mm -hmm. And everybody's very careful about what happens. So everybody was very cordial to me and, and it was a very thoughtful uh, interaction. I got to sit in, I get to, I get to have lunch with the monks, you know, from the stuff that they pulled out of the ground and stuff. It was Friday. So Friday is a fasting day. Yeah. So there was no meat. Yeah. So we had to go through that rigmarole. The, the soup was delicious. Pot, the pasta, it was some kind of grain pasta or something that was delicious. And the monk who was sitting next to me, he said, you know, usually this is very bland. It's very flavorful today. So we're all in the back room waiting for everybody to finish because then we can have the food. And I was like, why aren't you guys sitting with us? Uh -huh. Why wouldn't you be? But there, because the pomp and circumstance of the community, you know, and, and I don't, you know, um, but there was, so, so what was my takeaway? Three takeaways. Fantastic. It's happening. I think they need to have a little bit more structure on on discussion items and they need to be able to, there need, and there needs to be like a, like a coat check where you, everybody just kind of taps and says, we're going to meet as brothers and sisters and friends and talk about some of these issues in a, in a ecumenical manner, you know, like a multi, you know, you know coming back and sitting there and doing stuff because it's it, having formal structure is great, but it doesn't, there, it doesn't get to the meat of, I, I've had five five events with His Holiness Dalai Lama, and the first event we were very formal. The second event I got a little more comfortable. The third event I started talking to him in the hotel room, uh -huh. and the and then the, the the fourth and fifth we had these really thoughtful conversations with a small group of people. And I'm lucky enough to have that, for example. But I've had that with you know, Sistani and Sons and Ben Baya and, and all different types of faith groups. You need to be able to break those barriers out. Yeah, and I. I, so I, I spoke to the government about that and some other people about that. We'll see what happens. But I think that the fact that it happened is fantastic. Mm -hmm. The fact that something that, that they actually did it, that people came. Bartholomew came from Constantinople. Yeah. I was sitting next to a guy that was going, oh, the speech is ridiculous. I don't really, and I go, what, what did you catch in the speech? He goes, well, he said this, and you don't understand what's going on in the Orthodox Church. And I go, I go, yeah, but you know, what did you expect him to say? You know what? You know he's supposed to be the 
say lofty things and 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 with a little bit of hyperbole and say you know we are for goodness we're for you know everybody collaborating we're for all that stuff um and uh and so but i said but the problem is is right after his speech bartholomew left yeah you know so it wasn't like he was going to stay to like i would say defend his position but say you want to know what when we're talking about goodness this is what we mean within the christian community put aside your you know uh, uh your, your 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 list of grievances and we can do good for the world by doing this and and that didn't happen right and I, and so but the i think the, the 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 symbolism of intrafaith engagement was amazing the that's one two is there there's there's statements on record now that you can actualize right that you can you can hold people to or have them justify if they do something else okay and then i think the third thing is is that they were they, there seemed to be a friendliness that isn't that that, that generally that that we don't we don't really talk about, you know, like the Lutherans and the Calvinists were sitting in the same room with the Catholics and the, and they were joking. There was like the, when the Lutheran guy came up, he was joking a little bit, um, and I didn't understand the jokes, but everybody was laughing. And so, but he was talking about how you know, well, he came up and and he was you know he's sitting here with these guys and so and so, but you know because of this happened in you know in in seventeen oh five. You know, I was a little nervous about walking through the doors here. You know, like he said something like that. And I was like, what happened? And they were like, well, there was a, there was, there, there may or may not have been a purge, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like it was something like that. But he was joking about that. Yeah. That broke the ice. And I'm not sure that happens enough. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, there we go. I mean, that's, that's a good takeaway is just to the extent that we can set aside historical grievances and not take ourselves so seriously, we can make a lot more progress than we would otherwise. You know, we have, we have, you know, we have the now, and we gotta go forward. So let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. You know, so, well, I think I, you know, the problem is, is at, at one point Hungary was 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 that was the frontier. You know, at one point where Venice was was Asia started, but where Hungary. You know, they took on the full import of the Mongol invasion. They were under, I think, Ottoman rule for, for for sixty or seventy years, and so there's it's a tremendous nexus of where, like, the Hungarians have a PhD in dealing with in, in interacting with Muslims. They know what it means to to have to go to war with another faith group, mm-hmm. and that I don't think that could be in their own country, not a crusade. Yeah, not something in the far off lands, not something that's, that's, it's a Christian country, right? So Urbana said, we're a Christian country. This is what we're going to do, which is fine. I think it's important for countries to say who they are and embrace their identity, but they are also engaged in a multi-faith agenda, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, like I said, they have experience with real world experience of being occupied by another faith group. Yeah. Being hammered by the Mongols. I mean hammered yeah by the mongols which were muslim but they're a, a whole different breed of, of 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 hold on the mongols were muslim like genghis khan i don't i don't know if i would say genghis khan but in when you get to the when you get to the golden horde and you get to the sarai which is the cat was the capital northern part of the caspian they you you, you get into this this 14 uh for, what was it 1400 was it was a, was a tartar yoke in in russia um so they invaded killed two-thirds of the population and two-thirds of the raised two-thirds of the cities 
they embraced Islam later on. And in doing so, that became, I think it was under Jagadai, I think so. Uh, and so, and my history is a little bit off. So I think it was after they had passed Baghdad and after they had moved. So Batu Khan, which was the nephew, Genghis Khan's nephew that invaded uh, uh, Russia, he was not Muslim. But I think he, I think it was two generations after that they, they converted. Okay, so they became Muslim yeah. because of the territories that they inhabited. Well, and they apparently decided to embrace, you know, whatever. But I, I, I was just like thinking about what little I know about Genghis Khan and, and that sort of thing, and I don't, I didn't see any Muslim connection. No, well, Genghis Khan and the Mongols were very sort of faith-oriented. If you identified yourself as a as a as a as a priest or some kind of religious figure, they they gave you passage, which was unique. Um, they gave they you know they gave you. Um, they, they allowed you to live, which was a big thing during the time. I think that they, and then they aggregated. I can't remember when they did, when they, when there was the conversion, but they eventually converted to Islam did, and then maintained this tolerance towards other faith groups. Did they identify with any particular faith at the time of the invasion? Well, well the, the invasion didn't, you know, the, it's so Batu, like he, he took care of, he, he, he invaded Russia. And so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's worth, you know. Yeah, interesting question. Yeah, anyway, yeah, it's been some time since I thought about this. So I would know. The short answer is I don't know. At the, at the, at the, at the start of the vacation, vacation, the invasion. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, Freud, yeah, yeah, I think we should call it a day. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, this has been causing fades. Where Christian talks about something. Talks about, talks about, talks about something yeah, else. Right, we talk about vacation invasions. You say yeah. one thing, and we say, I say another thing, and it turns around, and we're going to no, tearing me apart. Well, I think it was a good, I think it was a good combo, but in any event, I appreciate you taking the time, but yeah, good talking to you, man.